From the Heart.org Radio, this is The Fellow's Corner. Hi, and welcome to the Heart.org Fellow's Corner. My name is Michael Blaha, and I'm a cardiology fellow here at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. For the last three years, I've been conducting research at the Chikaroni Center for the Prevention of Heart Disease at Johns Hopkins. At the Chikaroni Center, we emphasize research on the proper risk stratification of patients for preventative therapies. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Roger Blumenthal, who is professor of cardiology and the head of the Chikaroni Center. In this interview, we'll be focusing on Dr. Blumenthal's unique career path, which includes an early career switch from interventional cardiology to now a leading researcher and career mentor in the world of preventive cardiology. Dr. Blumenthal, hello and welcome back to theheart.org. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's been a pleasure to work with you during these uh, last uh, three years. Yeah, it's been great. So let's uh, summarize for everyone your career path so everyone can get a feel for, for how it is that you've gotten to where you are now. You started at medical school at Cornell, and, and then how did your career evolve after that? Well, I remember as a uh, second-year medical student at Cornell getting a, a very flamboyant lecture from Bill Costelli, the head of the Framingham Heart Study, and he made it very clear that most uh, cardiologists uh, at that time uh, really were not doing their job because they were just reacting to the end stage of disease. And he really thought we could predict uh, who was going to be at a higher risk for heart disease. And he also thought it was very clear that we could motivate young people, people who were the ages of our uh, medical students at that time or even adolescents to adopt better behaviors. And uh, around that time, uh, a number of family members had gotten uh, ill with cardiovascular disease, and um, I had several uh, family members who died of heart attacks. So I always was interested, Mike, in uh, cardiovascular disease, but like you, I'm a lifelong sports fan, and I was also uh, uh, very interested in orthopedics. I grew up in the Washington area, a big Redskin fan, and uh, Part of the reason I chose Cornell was because of the, Hopkins, the Hospital for Special Surgery, and I even did two months uh, with the New York Giants team physician, Russ Warren, on electives before deciding, well, orthopedics was pretty good, but maybe some in internal medicine and cardiology might be a little more exciting. Hmm. I didn't realize that, that you worked with the Giants. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so, I, but I then got you... to uh, see people like Phil Sims and uh, oh. Lawrence Taylor and people like that. So that was pretty cool for a medical student back in the 1980s. Yeah. So, but then, then you got interested in interventional cardiology. Is that right? Exactly. Um, you know, because I was sort of split between the surgery path and the medicine path, I, I thought after I went into internal medicine, uh, I'd probably either do cardiology or GI because they both had procedures involved with them. I guess um, I uh, had a ruptured appendix, and uh, that was a, one of my uh, big exposures to uh, GI. Um, and I, I did some uh, a GI elective when I was um, a uh, second-year resident at Hopkins. And I, I liked it, but I just thought that the cardiology things were a little bit more interesting to me. And given my family history of uh, cardiovascular disease, I, I thought I could combine my interest in sports, athletics, and cardiology, and, and um, the procedural aspects of cardiology, and doing angiograms, uh, stenting, atherectomies, lasers, was, was a, uh, appealing for, for a while. But then after I got married in 1997, I didn't quite 
like having to go back into the hospital in the middle of the night to do uh, cases of acute coronary syndromes and myocardial infarctions. So and there comes a point in time where everybody has to sort of uh, realize that they can't do everything in the field of cardiology. Well, I think that makes sense, and that I share your interest in preventive cardiology. So what advice do you have for fellows out there who are trying to pick uh, their specialty within cardiology that they should choose and pursue? Well, I think you always want to try to find something that interests you, and I think you always want to try to pick uh, role models. I, when I was a uh, cardiologist, I really liked to being around uh, people such as uh, Ken Boffman, Steve Acoff, uh, individuals such as Art Feldman, and um, I, I sort of tried to picture myself when I'd be on different rotations trying to do things uh, the way they would do things. But um, you have to sort of figure out what uh, you enjoy doing the most. And uh, I guess uh, one of the things that you also have to think about is you, you need some sort of a, a clinical specialty. It's uh, sort of hard to get hired these days, Mike, if you don't have a, a go-to specialty, whether it's non-invasive, like, echocardiography, and a lot of times now fellows will supplement that with uh, nuclear uh, and cardiac CT. You know, another career path can be the, the cath lab that, that I have for my clinical specialty. Um, and then others, as you know, choose uh, electrophysiology and others choose heart failure. So it's hard to be a, a general cardiologist without having a particular subspecialty such as uh, um, uh, echocardiography, but um, you know it, it can be done. And preventive cardiology is uh, combines all of uh, cardiology and fields of primary and secondary prevention, or or really unite the whole field. I think that's really interesting and good advice for other fellows out there too. Now I want to talk specifically about what has made your career successful. Uh, I know around here you're considered a voluminous writer. I think you have some 40 papers out in the last year. How important do you think writing, the skill of writing, has been in your career? The skill of writing has been crucial, Mike. I, I, as we talked about, I, I think once before, I was uh, uh, editor of my junior high and high school paper. I was a copy editor at one point in my high school paper. In college, I was a, a sports and feature columnist. I did radio work for the Hopkins campus radio station. And uh, I think it's very important to develop one's uh, speaking and writing skills not only for your interactions with patients, but with all, uh, other colleagues. And the way we rise through the ranks in cardiology is our ability to uh, produce papers, to give presentations. And I think that's, that's very important. Um, there's obviously some fellows like yourself who are extremely skilled writers, have a great background. But there's plenty of cardiology fellows who really haven't done much in the way of writing. Some uh, of the fellows have uh, relatively poor grammar and spelling habits. And it obviously takes a lot longer to get the uh, the, the right uh, abstract or uh, uh, research paper, review paper done when you have uh, more limited skills when you start off. But I, I think it's um, one of the key templates that you and I did is we, we picked a topic, metabolic syndrome. You had done some basic science things uh, with that. You wrote a superb uh, review article in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. It was as up-to-date as it could possibly be examined all the controversies, and then you and I have embarked upon a path of doing a lot of uh, original research uh, that ties in with risk stratification, preventive cardiology, and the metabolic syndrome. So I think that's usually a, a good way of doing things, to pick a topic where you can do a, a good uh, review article and know exactly 
what's uh, where the field is now and what the research questions are, and then pursue them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think we've done a lot with uh, simplifying guidelines and trying to communicate to other clinicians how to approach a what could otherwise be a complicated problem very simply. Correct. And I know you've made uh, kind of starting to make a career uh, out of this A, B, C, D, E approach that we've talked about. Uh, this is a simple way of putting together primary and secondary prevention guidelines. Can you tell us a little, little about the A, B, C, D, E approach that you've made up? Certainly. Well, I, I, for many years I was asked to give uh, lectures to the Hopkins uh, House staff and in the School of Nursing and the School of Public Health. And as you know better than most, there's a lot of guidelines out there. But it all came down to a, a framework where you could combine, at least in my opinion, the key aspects of heart failure, lipids, hypertension, uh, management of uh, acute coronary syndromes, and chronic stable angina. And uh, I was trying to think of a, a way to put in a, in a, a clear al algorithm. And then uh, the ACC, uh, unbeknownst to me, had uh, put together with the AHA uh, a small section in their management of chronic stable angina about the ABCs of uh, chronic stable angina. And it was around that same time, probably even a little bit before, that I was thinking to myself, well, I was a big fan of the Jackson 5 growing <laughs> up, and they were as ABC simple as 1, 2, 3. So um, we came up with uh, uh, trying to modify that, and, and actually at the same time, some much more senior people uh, very accomplished in the field, also like that ABC algorithm. Uh, Ray Gibbons from the Mayo Clinic um, and P.K. Shaw were among the, uh, the, the writers of that initial um, paper on chronic stable angina, and we thought, well, A. A stands for antiplatelet slash anticoagulant therapy. You could also uh, add, if you wanted to, ACE inhibitor ARB, because those are the medicines, the latter two, that you need to think about if you have impaired LV function or if you have metabolic syndrome or diabetes. B is blood pressure, and many times we'd add in beta blockade, especially in our patients post-MI, heart failure, inducible ischemia. C is cholesterol, cigarette cessation. Obviously, there's a, a lot with the cholesterol guidelines now, and we're more and more apt to consider uh, very aggressive LDL lowering and non-HDL lowering and combination therapy. The cigarette cessation, you know, we have nicotine replacement, we have bupropion, we have renaclean. Um, then you get to D for diet and weight. You know, all of us can improve our dietary habits, and for some, weight loss is going to be key. Then we have diabetes, and we thought, well, we could do both prevention of diabetes and management of it. E for exercise, and sometimes we put an ejection fraction to satisfy our heart failure colleagues. And then many times we'll also add uh, F for family history because so much of what we want to try to do, Mike, is, is as you well know, is to make sure the family members are aware of uh, the fact that if someone in the family has early cardiovascular disease, statistically they're much more likely to develop it. So I think if you can put the guidelines in that framework, as you've done very well in several publications, it, it makes it uh, much easier to interpret new data that, that comes about. Well, I completely agree, actually, Dr. Bumenthal. This morning I, I talked to the residents out here at the ICU about the, uh, your great paper in JAMA with Ty Gluckman about the uh, ABCDEs of the treatment of NSTEMI, and the, the, the students and residents out here just loved it. Well, I, I think it's very helpful, and the nice thing is that you can use it for both chronic uh, stable angina, you can use it for 
uh, the acute coronary syndromes. You can use it for the metabolic syndrome. And it really, you know, the, the heart failure folks, uh, it's basically, as you and I well know, they've got ACE inhibitors, ARBs, they've got beta blockade, they've got ICDs, um, and, uh, you know, uh, by the pacers, you can get all those things in the appropriate category, <laughs> and you have to make sure you, you deal with the other vascular disease risk factors. Yeah, that's right. So I want to shift gears briefly and talk about another important part of your career, I think. Uh, when I've looked back and kind of contemplated what made you so successful, it seems like another important thing has been your relationship with the colleagues at Hopkins. Certainly around Hopkins, you're known as an extremely collegial guy, always supporting other people's careers and looking out for their best interests at every, every point in time. It seems like you've collaborated with so many investigators on papers. How important do you feel collegiality and collaboration is in academics, and what can fellows learn from you about that? Well, Mike, I think collegiality and collaboration is, is very important. Unfortunately, um, it's, it's not done enough. I think when you get involved in a particular study as a fellow or a young faculty member, it's good to meet some of the more, more senior colleagues. And, you know, I had the opportunity through Pam O'Young to work on a, a silent ischemia uh, study when I was uh, just uh, finishing my uh, fellowship. Um, that study was led by uh, Dick Conti at University of Florida, and, and it was a great chance to get to meet uh, Dick and a number of the key players in the field of uh, preventive cardiology and ischemic heart disease. Probably the best mentor I ever had was Trudy Bush. The uh, late Trudy Bush was a fabulous cardiovascular epidemiologist who was at, at Hopkins and uh, moved over to University of Maryland. I had a strong interest in women and heart disease and estrogen therapy, and um, Trudy um, was a great person to work with, and I became uh, a... Uh, principal investigator for the Hopkins site for the HERS study, which was the first randomized placebo-controlled study of hormone therapy versus placebo, and that got me a chance to meet many people in the field. And then um, through my interest in uh, lipids and hyperlipidemia, working with Peter Kwitovich at Hopkins, I got introduced to people like uh, Tony Gatto, who's now the dean at Cornell Medical College, and I was invited to be on a number of AHA and ACC panels with uh, Dr. Gatto and some CME programs were, were started, and I got to meet a lot of people through that. I think I've also been successful in trying to find out what fellows are interested in. Um, many times you think you have an idea that, that they may like, but in reality um, they're interested in some completely different. So Naveen Kapoor is an example of a, a, a superb uh, uh, interventional cardiologist who um, I, I didn't realize had an interest in HDL cholesterol and some of the other aspects of preventive cardiology uh, he wasn't as interested in, but he was really fascinated by HDL metabolism. And uh, Naveen and I have written several papers together, including extensive uh, comprehensive reviews and book chapters about HDL cholesterol. He and I wrote the editorial in JAMA about the asteroid study, and um, I greatly admire what he's accomplished uh, now up in, uh, in uh, Tufts New England Medical Center, and it's, it's fun to, uh, to work with him on a number of projects. And uh, likewise, I, I realize that you can't know everything. Uh, you have a, a Master's of Public Health, and I never had the opportunity to get that, and that um, 
background that you have about statistics and clinical trial design is, is key, and I've been able to work with people in the School of Public Health who um, have uh, some uh, background and skills that I don't have, but I can certainly bring the, uh, the clinical research uh, cardiovascular perspective to the work. So collegiality is, is really important, Mike. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree with what you said, and I think that brings me to the, one of the final points that I wanted to discuss, which is that you're such a well-known mentor at Hopkins. I feel like every time I open my email, we've got people uh, asking to do research with you and collaborate on a paper because you're so prolific. You've launched, of course, many careers, such as a Juan down at the South Beach Clinic and, of course, Kermis here up in Boston. Uh, what, what do you think are some of the most important qualities that fellows should look for in a mentor? Well, I remember um, working um, a lot with uh, Samia Mara. Samia was uh, is a, a superb uh, researcher who just now has a great job uh, with uh, Paul Ritker and Peter Libby up at the Brigham. And, and, and Samia was a true delight to work with. And I, I mentioned Samia first and foremost because um, when Trudy Bush died suddenly of a heart attack at age 52, um, she had given me access to the Lipid Research Clinic uh, follow-up study data set. And I knew um, the questions that I wanted to, to pose in there. I had co-written a paper about the importance of non-HDL cholesterol. And um, Samia, at that time, was, uh, I guess, a first-year fellow. And um, uh, I, I had worked with her for a, a month, and um, I, I realized that uh, uh, she would be a, a great person to see if she might have an interest uh, and work with me on that data set and, and talking about some of the, the key questions about the predictive value of stress testing. And that started a very long collaboration that she and I have, and she's just been a delight to work with. Erin um, Mikos is another person who got her MPH at Hopkins, who's on the faculty, and Erin and, and I have written uh, quite a number of articles uh, together, and she um, has uh, some great insight into preventive cardiology risk assessment. She's branched out into things uh, such as uh, vitamin D metabolism. But uh, her basic interests in preventive cardiology and atherosclerotic vascular disease are the same as as mine. Ty Gluckman is someone who's taken a leadership role in the ACC and AHA, and he's in a private practice setting in Portland, Oregon. But uh, as as you well know, uh, we're still collaborating with Ty, and he's a superb writer and a superb uh, analyzer of, of guidelines and um, our chapter that'll be the lead chapter that you're the first author on our uh, new textbook on prevention of cardiovascular disease it'll be a companion to Brenwald's heart disease book uh, is written by you Ty Gluckman and, and yours truly and we're in the final stages now of, of the three of us uh, uh, writing a uh, another uh, chapter on, on primary and secondary prevention for a different textbook uh, the Hearst textbook. So um, there's been uh, quite a number of uh, really good people that I've had the chance to work with. And you have to, uh, when you select a mentor, I think, Mike, you want to find someone that um, who's going to be interested in you. I've unfortunately had experience with uh, mentors at Hopkins who, in retrospect, didn't have my best interests at heart and, and if anything, tried to um, slow down the productivity that uh, myself and some of my colleagues uh, would have had. And I think it's uh, much better to take advantage of people's enthusiasm, to give them 
appropriate feedback and to open doors for them and to step aside and let you know uh, people develop their their own uh, names. Uh, and uh, I think it's important to, for fellows to realize that um, there's going to be uh, obstacles along the way, but it's important to find something that you like, to find project that you think will be interesting and uh, see how it may fit in with your long-term career goal. And you may pick a topic that has nothing to do with what you think you'll be doing five years from now, but the experience of learning how to write, analyze data, uh, make recommendations based on your evaluation of the data is very important. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Boomer. I think those are all good points. And I think if I were to kind of summarize, uh, what I'm hearing from you is that feel free to switch your career to something that it, to make sure that you're doing something that you love. Find a mentor who will take advantage of your, uh, of your passion for what it is that you find that you like to do. Learn to be a good writer and appreciate writing skills and get along with your colleagues and find collaborations because that's when the, the best research gets done. Is, is, that, is that right? That's exactly right, uh, Mike. And you've, you've learned very well through our relationships with uh, uh, investigators at other institutions and um, through the, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, Mason, through some of the other data sets that we share at the, the Chikaroni Center, that there are a lot of smart people out there who have uh, access to certain uh, data sets. And sometimes when you can combine data sets, uh, you know, you can change from maybe having a, a sample size of 500 to a sample size of 5,000. Um, and your, your data is going to be much more persuasive. And, you know, you published a, a great paper uh, dealing with um, the prognostic uh, value of coronary calcium scoring and looking at the very low risk of total mortality over five to ten year period if you have a calcium score of zero. And that wouldn't have been possible without combining data from several different data sets. Um, so being a nice person, trying to make time for um, your family life and, and trying to make time for your own personal life in terms of the things you, you want to do, exercise, sports, things like that. Um, you and I both have... Uh, Youngsters, mine, uh, my son's a little bit older than your daughter, um, but it, it's important to, for mentors to realize that um, you know we're uh, just human and there's only so much we can do, but we want to try to, mentors should try to make best use of the time of, of the fellows and, and try to guide them in what they may want to do. And um, any writing is better than no writing, in my opinion, and can be start off with commentaries, review articles, and then get into uh, uh, primary research. Well, that's great advice. I think that uh, we all can learn something from your career. And uh, thanks a lot, Dr. Bumenthal, for joining us today at theheart.org. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to The Fellows Corner on theheart.org radio.